You're listening to Forum, a podcast brought to you by SHAPS, the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Welcome everyone to the SHAPS podcast. I'm Jimmy Yan, a PhD student here in history. Today we're talking political history and we're joined in perhaps more socially distant circumstances than normal by Professor Sean Skarma. Sean has recently been promoted Professor of History here at the University of Melbourne. He's also a Deputy Associate Dean in the Faculty of Arts. Sean is the author of numerous books on the history of social movements and the history of political activism. These include What If? Australian History As It Might Have Been, Gandhi in the West, The Mahatma and the Rise of Radical Protest, Activist Wisdom, Practical Knowledge and Creative Tension in Social Movements, and the little history of Australian unionism. Sean recently won the New South Wales Premier's History Award for his book On the Stump, Campaign Oratory and Democracy in the United States, Britain and Australia. But within just a couple of years after winning that prize, Sean has come out with a new and equally groundbreaking book, and we're here today to talk about Democratic Adventurer, Graham Berry and the Making of Australian Politics, Sean's fittingly titled biography of the late 19th century radical liberal and social reformer Graham Berry. Graham Berry was the Premier of Victoria, a founding member of the Australian Protectionist Movement and an oft-overlooked figure within the history of radicalism in Victoria. So Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's begin by talking about your new biography of Graham Berry. In many ways, you've redressed a lacuna within an Australian political historiography that overwhelmingly centres on the post-Federation period. So what first got you interested in Berry's life? Uh, yeah, I think you're entirely right that um, much of our political history does focus on the 20th century. And I suppose one of the things that drew me to writing a, a life of Graham Berry was uh, an attempt to counter that. Um, I think the 19th century is an enormously interesting uh, period um, in Australian political history, uh, precisely because it combines, um, I suppose, two elements of Australian history. One is the story of precocious advance, the notion that the suffrage was extended to white working class men in Australia earlier than most other places, and equally uh, white women uh, won the franchise earlier than most other places, mm -hmm. and that there were a number of uh, reforms passed um, and experiments waged by Australians. So the 19th century is interesting for that reason, as a kind of, I suppose, a more positive story of experiment and advance. Uh, but of course, it's also a moment of racial exclusion, and that what we think of as democracy was obviously defined by the racial subordination and exclusion of Aboriginal people um, and marked by campaigns of, uh, that attempted to exclude uh, Chinese uh, people from Australia. So I was interested in going back to that uh, period of 19th century history because of those two elements. And I suppose I'd written, as you noted, this earlier book on the history of stump oratory in Australia, the United States uh, and Great Britain. And in that book, which was also about the 19th century, uh, I'd come across and become fascinated with Graham Berry as a person. So this is someone who arrives in Victoria uh, in 1853 
um, who sets up as a grocer and then enters politics with great difficulty, is uh, uh, a radical figure, a scourge of the establishment, and a fascinating figure. One of the things that's fascinating about him is, um, and one of the, the few kind of um, portraits of him that, that reaches our time, is uh, Alfred Deakin's beguiling memoir, The Crisis in Victorian Politics. And Deakin describes Berry as, um, at one point, as, quote, the dictator of Victoria, someone who held absolute power. And he also recalls telling Berry that he held absolute power and Berry responding, yes, at one time I did hold absolute power, but only on the condition that I did not use it. And that, that portrait of Berry and that phrase of Berry's, um, that yes, I held absolute power, but only on the condition that I did not use it, um, was enormously uh, fascinating to me. And it opened up this sense that uh, Victorian politics in particular was this um, place of democratic ferment and that Berry's uh, life and Berry's uh, struggles might uh, offer a special insight into it. So those things sort of connected um, and brought me to the idea of writing a biography of Graham Berry. On the one hand, an interest in 19th century history and wanting to make that history live for contemporary readers, and another, um, a particular uh, magnetic pull of Berry's personality. Thinking now about Berry's political outlook and his political aims, uh, what were Berry's major contributions to the history of 19th century democracy in Australia? Well, he's an innovator in politics. As I said, he comes to uh, Victoria and sets up as a grocer, and he's always, um, in, in, on the one hand, trying to advance his own interests, so he is ambitious for himself. He wants to take advantage of the new possibilities for someone like him, uh, the fact that there is uh, no longer a property restriction for white men and that white men can vote and can stand for office. He wants to take advantage of that, and he wants to enter Parliament and make laws. But at the same time, he's facing a series of challenges. Although class formally isn't meant to prescribe involvement, there's a sense that political power is, is most appropriately wielded by, the, by, the, by those um, uh, who are um, not of the, tra- of the trading classes or the working classes. So his aim in part is to try and win power for himself, but precisely because he's someone who... Um, is from a working class, lower middle class background, that uh, effort to win power for himself um, is also a kind of a broader challenge. Partly the reason he's able to win a lot of support is that he symbolises the idea that so-called self-made men might become uh, important in the self-government in the colonies. His contribution is partly just the fact that he, he does seek to win power um, and that in seeking to win power and successfully attaining power, Uh, He represents a kind of a model or an imaginary for others, but his contribution also lies in practice and in policy. So his contributions in practice are that precisely because he doesn't have money, he doesn't have resources, he isn't well respected, he needs to find ways to um, convince others to vote for him and to wield power. And so he experiments with a whole range of methods. There are other uh, people in his position, other working class uh, Victorians, Victorian men uh, who are assembling in a place called the Eastern Market in the centre of Melbourne from the late 1850s. And this is where he enters politics. He becomes someone who becomes a radical outdoor speaker. And 
part of his contribution uh, to politics from the late 1850s, but throughout his career, is to affirm the importance of um, radical oratory, outdoors oratory often, as part of democracy. So what we think of as the practical import of free speech and free assembly, he's someone who's advancing that and enacting it um, across his career. He's also someone who's uh, in the realm of practice experimenting with uh, the political party as a form. We think of the political party as part of the furniture of political life, as something that, you know, in a sense almost has always existed. But of course, the idea of a mass political party um, was initially controversial and um, the, the way you would run and create a, a mass party needed to be discovered and Barry was formative here. So he's the person who sets up the first mass political party in Australia um, well before the Labor Party called the National Reform and Protection League. This is a party that at its peak had more than 150 branches. It had uh, a central branch that ran pre-selections. Uh, it had a common platform. Its members met together as a caucus. And uh, Berry was the founder of that party, the president of that party, and the parliamentary leader of that party. And bringing those things together was entirely novel and created precedents for later parliamentary politics and later mass politics in Australia. In the policy sphere, I suppose he's identified with a couple of policies. Most importantly, he's identified with the policy of protectionism. So that is the idea that the government, the state, should levy special taxes on certain categories of imported goods so as to create a wall or a shield for Australians to um, create those goods and to sell those goods. And the idea behind protectionism um, in Barry's hands was that it would be a mechanism to ensure that Australia could set up its own manufacturing industry and that it could employ um, urban craftsmen at good wages. Um, and he pushes this policy from the late 1850s all the way through his career. He's the leading spokesperson for protectionism. He um, buys a newspaper that pushes protectionism, the, the Collingwood uh, Observer. He buys another newspaper, the Geelong uh, Register, to push protectionism. He, as I said, he, he leads the political party that advocates protectionism. He becomes the first treasurer to implement a genuinely protectionist tariff. And as premier, he pursues protectionism. So it's often thought that um, David Syme, the uh, owner and editor of the Age newspaper, is the kind of, um, the terms often used, the father of protectionism in Australia. But what I try and argue in my book is that Berry uh, is a more important and certainly an earlier champion of this policy. So he's important and makes a contribution through pushing protectionism. As I discuss in the book, um, he links from the 1880s protectionism to the, the cause of racial exclusion and opposition to Chinese immigration. So he's associated with linking uh, together protection of the economy and racial exclusion. And he also pushes in various ways for policies uh, that are going to reform the constitution and to move it in what most people would consider a more democratic direction. So the colonial constitutions in Victoria uh, and in other colonies that were established in when um, responsible government was ceded to the colonies from the late 1850s, these constitutions had in practice a mass franchise for white working class men for the lower house, but for the upper house, they weren't open to um, the mass votes of the people. 
Now, the system's different in different colonies, but in Victoria, there was a restricted, restricted um, property franchise for the upper house. So that the franchise for the upper house meant that the, the, the electorate for the upper house was one-tenth of the size of the electorate for the lower house. And that upper house had a great deal of power and was able to, to continually block legislation. And Berry um, suggested that um, in the first 25 years of responsible government, um, about 80 major bills were blocked by the upper house in Victoria. So one of the things he tries to do throughout his career, but especially as Premier, is to try and cut back the power of the upper house with the idea that this will allow the lower house, the people's house, in his view, um, to make laws without the um, intervention of powerful class-based interests. So he's associated with those things, also tied to pushing for democratisation. He's associated with the quest for members of parliament to be paid with the idea that if you weren't paid to be a parliamentarian, then only the rich could afford to enter parliament. Brilliant. Now, you mentioned David Syme before and how Berry might provide a different perspective on this history to Syme. What was the relationship uh, between Berry and this broader colonial liberal milieu? And did Berry have any relationship with Syme? Yeah, absolutely. They had a relationship. Um, it was a tumultuous relationship. So as I said, when Berry enters politics and as he becomes more prominent, he's still seen as marked by his origins. So um, in England, he'd been apprenticed as a linen draper. Um, he'd come out and set up as a grocer and as a wine and spirit merchant. And for many of the well-born and better educated in, uh, in the Australian colonies, he was seen as a parvenu. He was seen as someone who didn't really have the right to exercise authority. And so many of the leading politicians looked down their nose at him and uh, David Simon, the age, definitely looked down their nose at Berry. When Berry started championing protectionism in the late 1850s, the age at that time was opposed to protectionism and it was quite scathing of Berry. When the age began to embrace protectionism and there was a greater agreement on policy, there was nonetheless um, a continuing sense of ambivalence on Simon's part and on, on the age's part. And this was magnified on, at a number of occasions, most notably in the middle 1860s. So by the middle 1860s, partly due to Berry's advocacy, a government is elected which does pursue a policy of measured protectionism. Um, and that's a, a government led by McCulloch um, with Higginbotham uh, as the Attorney General and as its leading and animating spirit. And that government tries to impose a tariff that the Legislative Council rejects. The uh, government uh, embeds it in an appropriation or supply bill and the uh, upper house rejects that. So there's a, there's a kind of a crisis where the government is going to run out of money because the Legislative Council has refused to pass its appropriation bills or money bills to keep the government going. And in that context, um, a crisis that runs over a number of months Berry ends up criticising uh, McCulloch and Higginbotham primarily for their tactics and criticising them openly and breaking with them. And when he breaks with them, the age turns on Berry and more or less hounds him out of politics. Um, he is defeated uh, for his seat that he then holds in Collingwood. He then moves to Geelong to try and revive his political career. Um, but even in Geelong, every time he stands for office, the age goes after him. Uh, says he can't be trusted, 
and uh, Barry in turn is highly critical of Sign and the Age. There is a period of reproachment that happens um, in the middle 1870s when uh, the Age sees that by this stage um, Barry is the primary figure that's associated with um, the values it holds dear by that stage, which are um, for um, a form of liberalism or social liberalism with a role for the state. Um, supporting protectionism, supporting greater democratic reform. Uh, they'll support um, Berry over, the, over 1875, 1876, 1877. But then uh, when Berry wins power in 1877 with a thumping majority, the age begins to flex its muscles more and to be increasingly critical of, of Berry's government um, so that there is a fracturing of that relationship between Berry and the age and each of them in a sense, are struggling for preeminence. They're, they're each of them are aspiring to be the leading voice of democratic reform in the colony, uh, and they're jealous of each other. And because of that jealousy, there are constant attacks, constant sniping, and of course, that ultimately um, weakens the movement for democratic reform and, and is part of the reason, although not the entire reason, part of the reason why the movement for democratic reform loses some of its energy in the early 1880s. Now, beyond the re local response to Berry from Victoria, what was the response from the Metropole to Berry's political projects and his premiership? Yeah, well, this is one of the, I think, one of the many interesting parts of the story. So at this time, remember, that this is the part of the story where the Australian colonies are relatively precocious and advanced in international terms. So there is manhood suffrage in the colonies, if, even if it's marked by racial exclusions. Uh, and that's not the case in uh, Great Britain, in the metropole. And that means that the Liberals of the metropole look towards the colonies, hoping for vindication of their hopes uh, in a wider franchise. And it also means, of course, that the Conservatives of the metropole look to um, Victoria for proof that you should not enfranchise the masses, because if you do, there will be great political instability and um, ne'er-do-wells and demagogues will rise to power. So when uh, Berry wins office for the first time, the conservatives of the metropole uh, say, aha, here's, here's proof of what will happen. Um, and they describe his first ministry, I think, as the most scrupulous gang ever to hold office in the British Empire. And um, one of the things that happens under the second major period of, the, the first major period of Berry, Berry government, but formerly the second government, um, which was elected in 1877, when this government uh, of Berries takes power in 1877, a new round of conflicts between the lower house and the upper house are enacted. And again, there's an attempt by um, the upper house to throw out appropriation bills and to starve um, Berry's government uh, of financial support. And in the, the teeth of this uh, conflict, Berry adopts a highly radical approach. What he does is he says, well, Upper House, if you're going to deprive us of the money uh, in order to run our government, we're going to um, sack all of the senior civil servants uh, in the colony. And uh, in early 1878, that's what he does without any warning. Several hundred senior civil servants, including uh, county court judges, are all sacked. And that becomes known as Black Wednesday. And the Metropole gets this news and 
as I said, the Conservatives in the Metropole see this as a proof um, that you cannot have a mass franchise, that the, um, if that happens, if the workers get their hands on the government, then you're going to have a revolution. And they describe it as a coup d'etat, as a Victorian revolution, etc., etc. They compare it to the French Revolution, uh, to the Paris Commune. So there's a great deal of critical commentary about Barry's government from the Metropole, but it's more than um, just commentary because Australia's um, political arrangements at that time um, continue to give the British government um, important power over the, what happens um, within the colonies. And um, Berry attempts to take advantage of this and explicitly tries to draw in the metropole into his attempts to make democratic reform. So if I can just sort of go back a few steps, one of the um, things that, that Berry's government tries to do from 1878 is to, to attack the power of the upper house uh, and to introduce a form of constitutional revision or constitutional reform that's going to limit the, the capacity of the upper house to, as they see it, meddle uh, in um, the workings of the, the lower house. So they want the upper house not to be able to um, refuse appropriation bills and supply bills. And they also want, although this is especially controversial even among liberals, they want um, a constitution that will allow for a form of plebiscite so that when there is a disagreement between the upper house and the lower house, they want um, that matter to go to the people, that is the people who can vote, and for them to express a view. And they want that view to then determine whether something will become law, a bill will become law or not. Now, Berry's plans for reform are blocked by the upper house. Naturally, they don't want to allow a constitutional revision that's going to reduce their power. And so Berry says, all right, well, if that's what you're going to do, I'm going to go to Britain. I'm going to set out on what he calls an embassy to Britain to try and change these arrangements. And he says, I have to do this because the British have set up a constitution for Victoria, um, which gives the legislative council, the upper house, so much power that I can't actually change it. So the British need to understand what it is that they've done and they need to somehow intervene so that there can be some kind of constitutional revision and new constitutional settlement. And he sets off um, to Britain uh, and arrives in early 1879 on this embassy to, to try and convince the British government to intervene on his behalf and to allow for, for some kind of challenge and hopefully to allow for his bill for reform to become law. What happens, of course, is that he's greeted by a British government that's strongly conservative in nature. This is Disraeli's ministry. And the Secretary of State for the Colonies has absolutely no interest in supporting democracy. He's not a supporter of a mass franchise in Britain and certainly not going to try and um, support those associated with the mass franchise and greater democratisation in the colonies. At the same time, people in Britain are caught up with other things um, going on with their empire, including a challenge to British control in Africa uh, in the so-called Zulu uprisings just as Berry arrives. So his embassy is a complete failure. He doesn't get the government in Britain to, to take his side in this constitutional dispute and he goes back a much diminished figure. And so um, it's not just that Britain and many Britons are critical of him and see him and his government as proof of the dangers of a mass franchise. It's also true that his 
attempt to call Britain and uh, British elites into the dispute on his side um, is another failure that contributes to um, his eventual the, the eventual defeat or disappointment of his quest for a genuine reform. Turning now from Berry to yourself, Sean Skarma, you're a historian of political activism and social movements. Thinking now about your overall career, how does your major study of Berry relate to your earlier work? And could you talk about your own path as a historian? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm sure it'll be rather garbled as I reflect on um, book to book because it's not as if there's been a a grand plan where I set out uh, in a certain direction and have systematically worked towards it. But as you say, I'm someone who's interested in political change uh, and in um, social movements and history. So, and as you observed in the introduction, my first few books were studies of 20th century politics, uh, especially and of contemporary social movements and their influence on democracy. But as I've worked away on the problems of social movements and democracy and activism and democracy, I've increasingly um, come to the view that the preoccupation with the post-68 social movements blinds us to the importance and to the lessons we might learn from earlier eras um, and earlier forms of social movements. Uh, And so that led me, first of all, to a study of Gandhian politics and the influence of Gandhian politics and Gandhi's political experiments in South Africa and India on Western social movements. It led me to a greater number of studies on 19th century social movements of various kinds and to the question of politics and performance. And that was my book on the stump. It was an attempt to think through, well, if we don't just think of democracy as a series of rules and a series of laws, but instead a series of performances. And we think about social movements um, and protests as versions of performance. Then we might also think about election campaigns as performances. We might try and uncover and understand how they developed as performances and how they shifted and how a version migrated from uh, one location to another and how that happened and what the implications of borrowing and adaptation were. So that got me interested in those things. And as I said, that um, concern with 19th century borrowings, 19th century experiments with political performance and the relationship between Australia and the wider world in turn uh, got me interested in Berry. I suppose as well, because I'd become so interested in the notion of politics as performance, I've been increasingly drawn to closer, more specific studies of particular individuals as exemplary of certain political performances and also as kinds of political symbols that exerted an influence on activists and observers at the time as well as afterwards. And that was in my book on Gandhi, my book on um, 19th century electioneering. And I thought, well, why not, given that Berry was so interesting, why not study um, him as a figure who hasn't been examined closely before in a book-length study, why not examine him in real depth and try and develop my, my own skills in understanding um, the construction of a political um, career and a, a political subjectivity. And what is the value of the biographical method in particular for the historian of political movements? Uh, there are, I, I think, probably two things draw me to the biographical form and its possibilities. 
Uh, one of them is, I suppose, the inspiration of someone like Robert Caro, the American historian, famous for his studies of Robert Moses and LBJ. And reflecting on his own project, Caro has said that he doesn't see his biographies simply as studies of you know, particular individuals, but rather attempts to understand the workings of political power. And that was definitely the um, impetus behind my particular approach to the political biography of Berry, contemplating his career, its arc from the early 1850s through to the late 1890s. I thought here is an opportunity to think through um, an era of a grand experiment with uh, a mass suffrage, the the possibilities that it was invested with, the ways in which it could be. Um, wrenched into new forms and to think through how an enormously creative figure and a determined figure and ambitious figure might attempt to use uh, the possibilities of a mass franchise for himself and for others like him and also to try and find and think through the limits of that kind of context what are the limits to the power of someone who wants to use a mass franchise and a parliamentary democratic system and as i said one of the things the book confronts is that even though Berry is enormously uh, creative and even though he's able to do things like create a mass party, win uh, arguments through powerful oratory, win mass support, even though he has all these resources, ultimately his quest for reform that he wants isn't successful. And so I wanted to think through the limits of parliamentary politics and the ways in which constitutional power, existing political power, but also economic power, the possibility of a capital strike which is what um, Berry's government faced, the way all of those forces um, can limit the power that's open to those who want to use parliamentary politics. So that's one appeal and one interest of using the biography as a form. It's providing an opportunity to give an insight into the kind of microdynamics of power and the interplay of structure and agency as creative figures try and win their demands. The other thing, I suppose, is audience that uh, despite the, the views of many outside the academy that you know, people who work in academic departments are always content to be in an ivory tower and to write only for experts, I think most historians aspire to reach a wider audience, and certainly I, I do, and try and write my books in an accessible way, in an engaging way. But I thought, well, a book that was a biographical study might have a greater potential of um, reaching a wider audience than a book that was around a more analytical or thematic or conceptual category. So that's one other appeal of the biography, I think, that it allows you hopefully to write in a freer way, in a looser way. It challenges you as a writer and it might help you to reach a wider audience, although we'll see whether or not that, um, that hope is fulfilled. Finally, Sean Skarmer, what lessons does Berry's life in this earlier history of colonial democracy carry? For present-day debates about political activism and democratic participation. First off, although I call the book Democratic Adventurer and although Berry uh, identifies as a Democrat across his career, we do need to remember that what he called democracy and what others called democracy in the 19th century was still a highly restricted polity uh, marked by restrictions of race and of gender. So Part of what I'm doing in the book is recapturing those exclusions and thinking through the ways in which some of the beneficiaries of that system didn't necessarily seek to, to widen 
the system as much as they might have. So that's one thing to think about. We live in a moment where the franchise is relatively uh, wide, but there are still various kinds of restrictions, restrictions of age in an environment of you know, looming environmental c- catastrophe where younger people aren't enfranchised. And also we have a very, very large number of people living in Australia um, who aren't Australian citizens and do not have the right to vote. And yet uh, government policy has an enormous impact on them and their industrial rights, their political rights, their rights to welfare are highly restricted and they don't have the option of parliamentary politics in order to try and influence government policy. So that's one aspect to think about, the less positive story, I suppose. The other thing I would suggest, the more part of Barry's story, would be an emphasis on democracy as creativity and as self-invention and recreation. So as I, as I said earlier, I think democracy is best understood not as a set of fixed arrangements or fixed rules, but rather as a project of self-government in which institutional forms are open to reimagination. And Berry is exemplary as someone who understood popular government in those terms. So he was someone who, as I said earlier on, who practised and widened through his practice the possibility of free speech, uh, who widened the possibility of um, the public sphere, not just through his speaking but through his editorship of newspapers and uh, his enactment of arguments for political change, who changed what the institutional or organisational basis of politics was by creating a new mass party and by trying to work with others through that party. He's someone who tried to change the constitutional rules that governed the polity and took to move them in a, in a way that allowed for greater So he's a reminder that um, when we look at our own democracy, it is not something that is perfected, but rather something, if we're to be true Democrats, that invites the quest for change and quest for further reform. Finally, as I, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that his career discloses is that even with the most uh, creative and determined political leadership, political activists face very many uh, barriers and restrictions, and those aren't just restrictions built into the rules of the, of the parliamentary system and the, the wider uh, state. They're also uh, built into the, the context of a capitalist economy in which uh, business has great power to respond to what they see as dangerous reforms by refusing to invest. Uh, and by undertaking a capital strike. And one of the things the book shows is that when a radical government faces a capital strike, it's in a very difficult position indeed, because as unemployment uh, rises, so naturally people begin to question whether it's wise to support a government that business does not support, and that there's a, there's a, a turn often to uh, a political party and political leadership that will restore business confidence. So that's a a problem that has bedeviled radicals who have tried to use the parliamentary system and social movements since the 19th century. Berry's um, career doesn't offer necessarily any solutions to that problem, but it is a reminder of the great challenges that radical activists and social movements face um, in the quest for change. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time, Professor Sean Skarma, and congratulations on the publication of Democratic Adventurer. The book was a really fascinating read, and I'm sure our listeners are all very much looking forward to reading it too. 
If people would like a copy of Democratic Adventurer, you can order your copy from Monash University Publishing. Now, Sean was due to give the Kathleen Fitzpatrick lecture, and that was also going to be Sean's inaugural professorial lecture. This has obviously been postponed due to the crisis, but please keep your eyes out for it later in the year. Now, that brings us to the end of this episode of the SHAPS podcast. This podcast is produced by students and staff in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. So thanks so much for listening and stay safe. This podcast was produced by the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which our university operates. Lands of the Kulin peoples, which includes the Wurundjeri, Bunurong, Wadarong, Jajawarong, and Tongarong peoples, as well as the Yorta Yorta Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands was never ceded.